Hi there, welcome to Singing Our Way Home podcast. I am your host, Eva Popov, and in this podcast, we will be talking about wellness and creativity and how the two intersect and work together to make life a little sweeter and richer. Each episode features a new conversation with somebody about their creative practice so we can learn a little bit more about this thing we call creativity and how it can support us as we make our way through life. I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of the land on which I live and work and create this podcast from and pay my respects to all elders past, present and emerging. My job is to say what you're afraid of is your greatest gift. You're a creator magnificent beyond your wildest dreams. Have the courage to look inside. If you're scared to go alone, bring a friend. (laughs) In today's episode, I speak with Marianne Wofke. Marianne is an Indigenous artist, midwife and storyteller. She has supported people through the biggest transitions in life birth and death and has used creative work to facilitate her own healing as well as empower others to face their own transformations. Marianne spoke about her own journey with creativity, about healing trauma with the arts, about the prenatal and postnatal period and how they impact us and about joyful living. We do cover some heavy content such as trauma and other adult themes. So please look after yourself when listening. I hope you enjoy this inspiring conversation as much as I did. My name's Marianne Wobke and I'd like to acknowledge the land of the Turrbal and Yagara people in Mianjin, where I'm coming to you from today, uh, the land on which I was born. I'd also like to acknowledge uh, Girame Mob and my maternal lineage and uh, just acknowledge this land and our lands have never been ceded. Lovely to be with you this morning. Thank you and I'm so excited to be speaking with you and I would love to start the interview with a little bit of um, background of the country you grew up on, the place that is your place of origin and what that might have been like. Oh, thanks, Eva. Um, so um, my history is one of stolen generation. So um, I, I feel in regards to my ancestors, um, although I was removed from country, uh, far north Queensland, uh, my mother was brought down to Brisbane and I was um, born in a, a home Uh, for unmarried mothers and taken into the care of family services immediately. I never saw or touched my mother. But I was born on Turrible land uh, here in Mianjin and was adopted by a non-Indigenous family also here uh, on the south side of, of Brisbane where I grew up. So this country here um, means a great deal to me. I've um, travelled to many places, but there's always been this profound sense of coming home here. Uh, but um, reconciling that feeling of displacement that was also 
um, really a part of my growing up, a, a really strong feeling of not belonging. Uh, a lot of my work is really about resonating with the country on which you stand and paying your respects to that. And, um, of course, restoring sovereignty to uh, the land in which you inhabit, which is your body. So, yeah, that's that's a little bit about just giving you a taste about how I feel about connection to country. I would love um, to hear a little bit about your background. Um, you are an artist and a midwife, but I feel so much more than that in those labels already. Would you like to just give our listeners an overview of the work that you do? I guess uh, my first and greatest passion was to become a midwife. So that was something that was really part of my reality from the time I was a small girl. I was always interested in all things birthing. My experiences in becoming a midwife um, really kicked off a whole exploration of self-discovery. And uh, part of that journey was discovering my Aboriginal heritage and the legacy of the stolen generation that had reoccurred generation after generation with the women in my family. And with that knowing and understanding came this sense of responsibility around the buck stopping with me. So when I identify as an artist, I do so not professionally. And in some ways, that's the same as midwifery. The uh, connecting to my Aboriginal heritage, uh, which I felt I did through my ancestors, I felt the presence of my great-great-grandmother at the first birth I ever attended, and it, it was a life-changing experience, first birth I ever attended as, as a midwifery student. So um, really... The creative parts of my life are all about the resources that I believe that we have inside uh, that really establish us as creators in this experience that we call life. So my work as a midwife, uh, working with birthing and dying people, has really been around reconciling uh, trauma inside myself and coming to appreciate that true understanding of our authentic self, which is, I believe, we're here to create. Um, and I believe that midwives, particularly in traditional times, were the holders of that law. The story around birthing was one that we were, um, that journey of gestating and birthing was one of, triumph, overcoming challenges, of establishing a really strong and profound connection to the sacred and to Mother Earth. Um, all of the law that uh, is necessary for us to live well and flourish, um, I believe, was meticulously held by women of high degree in, in our birthing practices. So my journey um, as a midwife has been really unpacking levels of trauma and revealing more and more about that creator inside me. And to create, um, we are so privileged to live in a time where we have such incredible resources 
So not only practical resources that allow us to create art, but uh, the thing that really supported me was the practitioners, the social prescribing, if you like, the partnerships that I had with expert artists, confident artists that allowed me who had no developed capacities in that area through our schooling and an omission around developing that, these partnerships with artists allowed me to bring creative images through in a really sophisticated way without bumbling through the, the steps of, of learning these practices. So when I say I'm an artist, I really use that term loosely in that I collaborate to create art and uh, collaboration always involves connecting with truly creative people and um, allowing something incredible to emerge which interestingly is the essence of midwifery allowing that creative gestation emerge into the world in uh, an ecology of sacredness and triumph and celebration unfortunately these days, too many of us are born feeling less than, um, unworthy, not good enough, you know, a whole range of toxic realities that corrupt our perception and distract us from the fact that of who we really are, these creative geniuses. Yes, and you spoke about how you actually grew up with a sense of not being an artist and that it was through midwifery and collaboration that you found it. Can you describe some of those collaborations? Sure. Um, that's a really important point that you make too about I could probably hone down on the date um, that I found out I wasn't an artist um, at school and I talked about that when I, I received the Ros Bauer Award and this is the power that people in authority have over our children in particular who are so impressionable. Um, I made a mistake in the instruction she gave around creating an artwork and was shamed and humiliated, not because she came to school today to shame and humiliate me, but because that was a trauma story that I was ca carrying. So when she told me, um, like really angrily and frustrated, goodness knows what was happening in her world, that that was wrong. Um, it created such a, a storm of shame that I never engaged with art again for many, many years <laughs> um, until uh, I started to enter in the sort of collaborations you've just asked me about. And the first part of that therapeutic reimagining of myself as an artist was working with um, psychiatrist Dr. Stan Groff and um, Tab Sparks. And the way they did their therapeutic work was uh, utilising a Jungian idea of mandalas. So it wasn't about you being an artist. It was about if you were going to do deep work on trauma, um, then this was a necessary resource or tool to help you process that. So the emphasis wasn't on creating a piece of art. It was using the mandala, that portal in a sense, to try and communicate the images from within. And 
I surprised myself so much with the um, excellence, the accuracy of the images that I was drawing. Um, they felt almost channeled. I was so surprised by these images. But over the, I guess, a 10-year period when I was drawing this material, um, a particularly intense two-year period uh, during my midwifery training and just after that, I drew 52 drawings in a apparently haphazard, non-linear fashion. Uh, if you understand entanglement theory, you'll appreciate that when I looked at those whole, uh, those 40, uh, 52 images, they became a portfolio of my perinatal journey. Each image, um, as I've reflected on them more and more deeply, uh, Following that experience, like a researcher, in a sense, I started to understand and appreciate, and this came in line with contacting my birth mother and having these stories validated after drawing them, that each drawing was an accurate description of a place or an experience during my perinatal and postnatal um, earliest time period that... Um, you know, the first 1,000 days, but more specifically from conception till the end of six weeks when we're hugely imprinted into how we perceive the world. So I'd captured the accuracy of that pre-verbal journey in images and they would have been disregarded if it wasn't for my clinical knowledge as a midwife that was totally blown out. But even more impressive to my Western analytical mind was meeting my birth mother way down the track and finding out um, as she's a registered nurse with early childhood uh, development qualifications. We had this incredible conversation about the accuracy of that experience. So this completely blew my Western knowledge system, as you can imagine, out of the water and incrementally, but changed the way I approached um, not just midwifery, but um, uh, recovery work that I was doing with clients. That's a huge story. So the images that you created told the story of the experience that you knew somehow and came to understand through Absolutely. They're all on my website. They're placed in a linear fashion because that's really satisfying to us and, and it's a death rebirth journey. But what shocked me as somebody who had no prowess in drawing anyway, and skill, I'm not talking about the skill of the images, they are highly emotional, evocative images that capture really dramatic details of perpetrated trauma, both omission, what was done to my mother, and uh, what wasn't done that should have been done. As a fetus who was supposedly, it's not possible within our Western knowledge construct to uh, record that information, I not only recorded it in my cell tissue, I was able to then re-communicate that with incredible authenticity and have that validated. Now, that's mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing, yeah. And I'm curious about how through that 
journey of creating those images and acknowledging the reality of them, how did that change you? Did it create any resolution or did it change the way you processed your experiences? It changed me every moment of every day. And um, I didn't know why at this point. I just knew that I was suffering a lot and I knew I had a passion to be a midwife. So um, my inner and outer world were really tumultuous and really difficult to reconcile. And I put a lot of effort into turning up to work and being the best I could be. Um, But a lot of the time I was just a hot mess. And, you know, in our previous conversation, you talk about creativity and the messiness of life. Unpacking trauma was really, really messy. Mm. It was incredibly challenging to negotiate. I give thanks to my Western analytical mind because um, there were times when I could have been absolutely dismissive and certainly other people externally were. And yet something in me, um, the researcher in me, the analyst in me, (laughs) couldn't deny the credibility of the evidence that I was seeing. I couldn't deny that drawing these images weren't just some expression of madness, some dark madness. They had a coherence. They had a connectedness and they had a feeling element that when I emotively drew these drawings and I'd cry I'd like these were deeply emotional drawings and then after that emotional release I would often sit in that stillness of just being and sit in awe of what I'd done what I'd drawn one image for example was around attempted abortion and this was revealed to me over a 10-year period But the drawing I drew and the feeling I had prior to the validation was a dragon coming up through the cervix, a baby holding on to the placenta by the cord at the top of the cervix in a futile attempt to escape and fire coming up into the womb to destroy the fetus. Now, The feeling element was so wild and so intense and clearly evidence like high um, blood pressure, intense heart rate, difficulty breathing, sweating, like a full physiological reaction to this drawing. But as I cried and felt into it, it's like a hologram, different levels of it emerged around a termination that I'd had in relation to reconciling the strong emotions, the guilt and shame with that, and then the feeling of being adopted. And I knew enough about the adoption scene to know how brutal that was for mothers relinquishing children and the shame my birth mother must have felt. But in the years that progressed, I started to see the intergenerational levels in this. My great-great-grandmother, when her children were removed and we received the documentation about this, the police report, her legs were set on fire and her children were removed. And in recovering from those burns, she was in a wheelchair uh, for the remainder of her life or crippled for the remainder of her life. Now, somehow, I'd captured that story 
10 years before in a drawing about me being burnt. Can you see? Um, it, it might lack emotion in the telling. I'm sure if I had the story, the picture to pull up, it would help. <laughs> the dragon and the fetus is, is on my website. But it was that moment of that cascading awareness of that deep knowledge, not my knowledge, mm. that my body revealed to me everything I needed to heal that intergenerational trauma. But I would never have valued it, respected it, or therapeutically worked with it if I hadn't been held in a place where I could uh, communicate it as art. I'm curious about whether you were supported in this process was this a process that you underwent like on your own at home or did you have professional support to help you because these are these are big stories and big traumas that that are coming out no I I worked for 10 years uh, for 20 years sorry with uh, Dr Stan Groff and Tab Sparks so I trained as a holotropic breathwork facilitator and then I worked with them in Australia and around the world for a number of years. But the training, the support that Stan, uh, Tab in particular, um, Mary Madden, others in the team gave me was absolutely exemplary. And Dr Stan Groff, who's arguably like up there as the father of, of LSD research with uh, Hoffman, who discovered it, their deep, deep work in these areas have revealed these intrapsychic landscapes that more and more people are, are now negotiating. And what I came to understand through my own work, which was constantly reinforced as a midwife, is these domains of the perinatal um, are dramatically influencing how we are in the world at the moment, from this increasing epidemic of mental health crises, to uh, escalating addictions, greed, violence, uh, mismanagement of power. Uh, there's a powerful source of all of this in how we're corrupting the birth process um, at the moment is powerfully influencing this. And as uh, somebody who's working with birth, you're bringing all this knowledge that feels so great and greater than the sum of its parts in a way but integrating it into a model that doesn't respect that knowledge and I'd like to hear about how you manage those two things. <laughs> Good question. So um, yeah perhaps I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed but 30 years ago at my first birth my great-great-grandmother um, made her presence known at that birth and I was attending the birth of a traditional woman who'd been raped by uh, a white man in a position of power and privilege and no consequences uh, had occurred in, in relation to that atrocity. So um, this young mum came into Toowoomba to birth this baby and my great-great-grandmother, who I previously had been unaware of, really made her presence felt in how she, in a sense, arrested the situation that instead of interfering with that birth, I was in a position of privilege to watch that mother birth 
triumphantly in spite of the horrific circumstances. It in no way detracted her from this deep, organic understanding and surrender to her body in that process. She birthed in a way that absolutely made the majority of what I just learned as a midwife redundant. So that had a massive experience on me, but it was also what followed. It wasn't just the triumph of the birth. It was like the ancestors were giving me a huge three-dimensional high definition uh, what happened to me in that at that time of birth, the mother never looked or touched the baby. She turned her back. She she pushed the baby across uh, towards me and um, then she, she went to the bathroom. And I uh, did the recess on the baby and took, took the newborn down to the nursery and absolutely shattered. Uh, it had such a profound effect on me and it was the the cries of abandonment of that newborn. It was her absolute extraordinary distress calling for a mother that I knew was never going to come. So I knew I was adopted. There were some very obvious connections, but the the depth of the emotion I I experienced was just life-changing. And what followed uh, for the next 30 years was a process within the health system of trying to reconcile that. And what happened to me that day, I described fairly quickly as perinatal dreaming. I, that was the term that came to me. But it was a number of years before I drew an image that I called grandmother dreaming. But what my great-great-grandmother gifted me that day was grandmother dreaming. And uh, as is usual for me, I didn't bother to read the fine print. I just thought, I'll have that. (laughs) 30 years of refining in a system that was violently triggered by the information I was bringing through. On one level, you know, I could complain (laughs) about how challenging that experience was and futile. But where I actually rest now is in a place of absolute gratitude that for whatever reason, karmically or whatever, that happened because it happened. And the refinement and reconciliation, the understanding that I gained from going to work day after day after day, not just um, as a midwife in a clinical setting, but I was one of the first um, staff employed at Toowoomba Hospice and did so as a midwife. Like I surrendered to guidance in being accepting where I was shown to be. So while I was in extremely challenging and often violent professional and personal settings, at the same time, the rules never changed. The download I received from my great-great-grandmother that day, it, it was on solid ground. So in in spite of the various tantruming over the years around this is too hard, the bottom line reality is it refined me and continues to refine me into a place where this is not negotiable. I don't have to argue with 
people in positions of power anymore about the legitimacy of my work. I dedicated myself in the last 30 years to working with clients, many of them uh, without charging, um, simply because they were brought to me by the ancestors and I felt the challenge was to serve them and my own healing as best I could. So now that I'm resting, which is a weird word, uh, doing my doctorate, resting back from that really intense acute work, I'm really getting time to digest the importance of that refinement process and that journey to eldership. And now as I'm emerging into eldership, I see a whole other gestation and journey ahead of me. But I look back with absolute gratitude for where we've come. We can't hold people accountable for what they're not aware of, for not what they're not conscious of. And that's been absolutely fundamental to me coming into relationship with myself and forgiving myself. So everything that I've learned has come from um, my commitment to self-reflection and healing myself. Um, so taking that process internally and then with what I've learned, trying to share that with others outside in the world. And that takes patience, a refinement, a commitment to compassion, even when you don't feel compassionate, a commitment to addressing shame, to not rushing by it and letting it fester in secrecy, to um, stop and expose it, a commitment to decolonizing my thinking, to deconstructing time. Um, these things are so big that the best I could do was take them on a day at a time. Mm. And that's what I continue to do. But now I'm not negotiable. This knowledge is law in me because I've practiced it over and over and over again, um, not to refine it into a tight box, but to respect it as a law that I need to follow to flourish. So things are difficult. The health system is in crisis. And if we look at all of this from cause and effect, if we take it down to physics, they did this to me, now I'm really pissed off and I'm going to wait to do something to them, we're never going to get well. We need a radical shift to a new understanding of physics, which Indigenous people have understood for tens of thousands of years. Kenyini, uh, quantum physics, entanglement theory, interconnectedness to all things, but with that responsibility for all things. So if I'm going to take full responsibility for myself, that changes how I am in the world. Marianne, you just mentioned a beautiful term which I wanted to ask you about which was Kanyini. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Kanyini uh, was a gift. Um, it's a Pitanjara word from the central desert. It was gifted to to me, uh, my awareness uh, when I was studying at QCA 
and um, the film came in, he came out, created by Uncle Bob Randall, who was Metajulu elder with respects to his family and uh, mentioning his name. He's now passed. So Kainini, as Uncle Bob explained it to me, was interconnectedness to all things. But so far beyond that, that when we take full responsibility for ourselves, not 99%, 100% responsibility for ourselves, in doing that we have this deep appreciation that we are also responsible for everything around us because we interact with that so elegantly and synchronistically. Kainini is about that deep, broad appreciation of a, a perennial philosophy that I wouldn't pigeonhole all Aboriginal people as they all have an appreciation of Kainini. But if you really immerse yourself in this type of perennial philosophy, you'll see that the deep understanding of it is the same irrespective of the language or the word to describe it. So in every great spiritual system around the world, there's the same deep understanding that our Indigenous people had here for tens of thousands of years. And when we stand on this land and claim ownership of it, uh, we need to do so with absolute respect and gratitude that we are here and able to imminently connect with such a profound and uncorrupted understanding of how to flourish as human creators and in an ecology of well-being. We don't have to invent it. We've got to remember it. <laughs> Remembering interconnectedness. We're going to have to radically shift from this enchantment we have with our mind, this intoxication we have with the limited function of our brain <laughs> and that narrow myopic view of the world and really expand into this perennial understanding of what well-being means and beyond our Indigenous folk who are wired that way and will generously call us home, I celebrate women <laughs> and particularly women like yourself who are deeply connected to that understanding of your body as a garden that can drop a seed that grows into a baby. And you don't have to get up every morning and go, oh, got to gestate this baby. Hell, I'm going to be busy today. What you need to do is feel loved, um, nourished, joyful, and culturally, that's our responsibility. If we can create this environment, ecology around you, and then you're able to create that internal ecology uh, for the baby growing within you, we will change the world. And then, of course, how you birth. It is women's birthright to birth triumphantly, orgasmically. Every mammal on the planet owns that birthright. And that magic that... Uh, Professor Robin Thompson calls the exquisite three golden hours after birth. Mm. If we can insist on that for our mothers and babies and hold that space as sacred and reverent when that baby comes to the breast and renegotiates physics, gravity, um, mm. the experience on the world of every level but is held 
is in absolute surrendered delight, bliss, interconnected with the mother, but through the breast, on her skin, hearing her heartbeat. When we understand the true nature of what we were given here, it becomes, of course, our passionate responsibility to remind people, to bring people back into alignment with that truth. I'm curious about if your work in midwifery, you have worked with women to bring in the creative process, to bring in the art making process. Can you tell me a little bit about how that has worked? Sure, without getting myself into too much trouble. But one of the problems with having your Western worldview shattered is I started to see everything about midwifery through a di different lens. And while I started in the birthing suite, you know, I naturally moved through different other areas like antenatal, postnatal. Um, so seeing women at different stages of this journey. Also, as more and more of my friends started to birth, I became more immersed in the journey rather than the birth <laughs> as such, you know, really starting to see how interconnected it all was. I was absolutely infatuated by the French obstetrician, Dr. Michelle O'Dent and water birth. And so I started to see birth really, really profoundly as a creative process. So like any creative process, um, and again, if I use the metaphor of the garden, you can't drop a seed in the garden and then go away and just cross your fingers and hope that that's going to work out well. It requires a, a lot of creative attention and nourishment. So I started to see and understand and feel very powerfully the challenges that the women I was supporting was, were feeling. And because I felt them very viscerally in my body as well, in these close partnerships, I would come up with creative solutions selfishly at first to ease the discomfort in my body, but to support them as well. Similar to the process that I was doing in breathwork, where we were helping a lot of people go through birthing-like processes and seeing how dance, movement, singing, art totally supported the integration of those memories coming to the surface to be digested. I started to think, well, what happened if we really addressed this at the at the source rather than, you know, say to the baby, well, in 20 years' time, give me a call and we'll sort you out. We'll, we'll get you fixed up. So rather than women lying on their back and needing epidurals or pain relief in brightly lit rooms, all of the things that now really violently <laughs> discredited that system um, for me, uh, left me with a huge omission around how are we going to fill that. And I was connected to an incredible group of midwives that uh, were also very creative in this space. We understood the process. What we needed to, to bring around it was more of our creative attention so, for example, uh, when I was working with Birthing in Our Community and the Australian Nurse Family Partnership Program, Professor Sue Krusky 
in uh, great act of innovation, employed me for 12 months to set up uh, a creative space for mums to come into antenatally but postnatally. So what I created in that space was typical Blackfella way, a nourishing, homely space where people would come. But in the kitchen area, we just bought as many creative resources as possible and uh, brought them on a spectrum because I wanted to really address the young women I was meeting that resonated with my um, creative trauma uh, in that they would say, I'm not creative. There they were gestating a human being saying, but I'm not creative at all. So what my experience at uni was being with master artists and feeling like an absolute imposter, what um, my favourite of these artists would do would sit down with me and embrace me like I was a child at the level required to engage me. So I started uni at QCA the first six months just playing with glitter and a glue gun and crying and uh, progressed through that to to receive first-class honours. So I can promise you it works. (laughs) But that's what I I did uh, at the Hub was set out a range of really playful materials that would entice their children if they brought um, other kids in as well, but um, would also build their own creative confidence um, in doing things like choosing colours or stencils. And because we're in an Indigenous community, we'd, of course, bring the staff in, and so many of the staff were just accomplished artists themselves. So there was this constant interplay of skill sharing that meant nobody was left behind. Nobody was left feeling inadequate or not belonging. So I created or recreated through my imagining what that cultural environment, ecology, would have been traditionally. And, of course, everybody resonated with it. So from there, I became besties with this absolutely phenomenal dietitian who was there, a non-Indigenous woman, again, having trouble engaging clients. Well, she started doing cooking. So she'd cook meals. We'd be around the kitchen table. I'd bring food in from food bank. We'd gather enough food from food bank, and I'd do it the day prior, that Gillian Dre, this extraordinary dietitian, would create a recipe for the next day. She'd cook it up, but we'd give bags of food and the recipe to everyone to take home. Support, support, support. Nourishment, nourishment, nourishment. And it's designed from creativity. Everything about what we were doing was an act of creativity and in that you're in, back to physics, you're in an infinite field of possibilities. There are no silos. There are no destinations. There's no beginning and end. There's a journey and the journey is of belonging. And if we hold true to the creative process, people are feeling so good It's a wonderful opportunity to mitigate maladaptive behaviour that's triggered from trauma. So, you know, if if people would start getting antsy with each other, there were ways to separate that or deal with it. 
if if people were dealing with violence at home, we'd bring in the lawyers or we'd bring in somebody to talk about that and about the services, but all in that creative space where people were making art, making food and yarning within the same environment. So a a mum might come in homeless, pregnant, um, really down and out, you know, I, I can't make art, don't know what I'm doing, never done it, don't get it. By allowing people the space, creating the space for that individual to feel welcome, nourished, their story is going to start to emerge. And in the listening to their story, they'll tell you what's important and that's the gateway into creativity. And sometimes it would be about, oh, I really love taking photographs. Oh, I used to work with clay. Um, having enough entry points that you find what resonates with that person to wake up that song line, to wake up the, the sleeping monster, which is the creator in them. You know, we're all scared about this big force inside us because our brains are constantly limiting us to to download worst-case scenarios about the unfamiliar. My job is to say what you're afraid of is your greatest gift. You're a creator magnificent beyond your wildest dreams. Have the courage to look inside. And if you're scared to go alone, bring a friend. We will stop projecting our power onto other people when we own how incredible we are and that in that understanding of physics, uh, you can't remove a, a shining light. Every shining light is necessary to create that fabric, to create that design. So everybody needs to shine. Everyone needs to move forward in an act of creativity. Creativity is not separate to us. Who better to inform us of this than mothers? You get this right. Gestating and birthing and as you bring and nourish your beautiful children up, we don't have to have these conversations anymore. It's an innate part of who we are. We don't, but also we do because it gets compartmentalised and put into published books or stages or you know you have to buy a ticket to it and only the people who are trained can do it so I think this reclaiming sadly is work that does need to be done it does but um I think we need to remember while we're doing it we're Mm. we're already whole (laughs) we're already healed we it's it's work but it's not work Now it's the game. It's the unfolding. So when we stay true to these truths, the people that are unaware and still publishing what they're publishing or dictating what they're dictating, um, this comes back to a place of compassion. The more we're really steeped in compassion for ourselves, we can see, oh, my goodness, they're oblivious of this. They can't be held accountable to what they're currently oblivious of. So that's really freeing in that we don't have to fix that. We just keep creating the ecology that has been obscured by trauma. And the trauma sheds itself. 
We're adding to it every time we get lured back into, oh, shit, I've got to fix this. <laughs> I feel you keep saying things that I just want to pull out and meditate on them for a long time to digest. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to go back to it and pull it out in my own way. But we just need to create the ecology that trauma has obscured. That was it. We just That's need right. To- if we're in an ecology of love, this brings me back to the work you do and mums. Mm. If we can stay in that ecology of deep, deep love, it, it's physics. We don't have to fix anything. It's already fixing. The more of us that shed our trauma, and we don't have to work at that either. You know, the world is constantly revealing to us what we need to work on through triggers. <laughs> so our job is, oh, I'm triggered. How do I get back to this feeling of well-being? This is what I'm saying. My commitment to if we can hold mothers in this place, mothers innately know this because they want the best for their babies. So if we can reignite this knowing in mothers and then hold them while they gestate and birth and nourish their babies. What I meant by we don't need to have these conversations anymore is we won't need to deal with the trauma that's obscuring this reality. You know, we are organically and osmotically drawn to this. It is such a powerful attraction. And the more we feel bliss, the more we feel well-being, the less you want to go back to those survival hormones of competing, greed, fear, jealousy. Why? Because it feels crap. So when we look at at babies, when we look at, at children that are securely attached, even ones that aren't, you know, you, you put them down on the grass and give them some bubbles and they're in heaven. You know, this is where we need to look at recovery, not not fixing things down the track that are, are broken, almost beyond repair. We need to go back to the source and really look at what are we seeking? We're seeking what we see in our babies that are curious, blissful, relaxed, fully embodied. They don't care if they're gurgling, singing, dancing, moving, farting, Mm -hmm. (laughs) licking. It's all part of the glorious, magnificent experience of being here because they're securely attached. If we all felt that securely attached, if we understood the nature of the universe is this deep and profound love beyond our wildest dreams, if we could reconnect to that, can yini, then the world would change. Yeah, we'd still have challenges, but we'd embrace them creatively. I would love to ask you, um, you mentioned briefly working in a hospice as well as working with birth and I understand working in a hospice that's working with dying as well. So you've worked with birthing and dying. I wonder what you have to say about any similarities or lessons. I've heard you speak of it as a coal face before from being at those coal faces. Yeah. Oh, great question. So what I started to understand in the information that was being revealed to me, that birth was only half the story. So as I started to under, uh, appreciate that this 
trauma can be inherited, it can be compounded in the birthing process and have a lifelong impact. I was really curious with the elders that I was looking after how that was manifesting. And um, so when the opportunity came up, uh, when the trauma hospice was established, and I knew the people establishing it really well, like everybody on the panel, um, even though I was working as a midwife, I decided to apply for the job as a midwife, which everyone thought was hilarious. Like, <laughs> you've lost it. You know where you are. <laughs> the hospital's that way. Um, but I pitched the idea and they got it. And that was my deep understanding that birth and death were innately linked and it was simply another doorway, you know, a flip side of the same coin. I approached my time at the hospice, about two and a half years there, from its establishment um, onwards with an incredible group of people and an amazing director, Karen Brosnan, hugely innovative. I really explored what happens to us when we don't deal with the uh, intergenerational perinatal trauma when we carry on those unconscious patterns through to our dying process which inevitably will manifest in some sort of chronic disease you know the whole accumulation of that decades of of fear-based motivation and in a sense so what I brought to the hospice was that midwives understanding that deep deep compassionate capacity to to be with somebody in perceived suffering and there certainly sorry a share of suffering there but I also had a skill set in relation to relieving that and that was a creative skill set now the challenge I found in the hospice is if people uh, were brought into us more often than not in the period after their assessment when they were initially in the hospice they'd improve and I would attest that was the level of support and nourishment the feeling of safety and I spent a lot of time with people in that space and I worked with my dog I had a golden retriever who came to work with me every day and he was extraordinary. He didn't come in with every client, but clients that love dogs, it, you know, it was like, oh, you're here. Where's your dog? <laughs> um, and I would get to work and he would literally go one way and I'd go the other way. He'd go and, and visit the clients that he had the deepest and most profound relationship with, usually that involved biscuits. And I'd go, you know, to the office. The only time that would be different, and everybody knew this, is if we arrived at work and somebody was uh, in the final stages of dying, there was no question. Max would go directly to those that person's room and lie outside the door without fail. Insanely intuitive dog. So working at the hospice, what I noticed, in that period of improvement, I'd focus on storytelling and we'd really look at who the person was, how they wanted to identify and what stories were important. And we would work creatively with them within the energy that that person had at any, any given time. So sometimes we'd use pain relief medication, um, but just really relationship-based and understanding the person and using opportunities of time to do something creative with them. So we'd bring in different creative artists that might work with clay, like weaving, um, different body work, like gentle massage, reflexology, 
you know, all of these sorts of things. What you would find as the person moved closer to the end stages, similar to birth, uh, was this really quite dramatic regression. And it would, I would see it as a regression through the behavioural milestones that where they'd um, had experienced some sort of trauma and there'd been some sort of maladaption. They hadn't hit that milestone. So uh, one story, for example, was this elderly guy who was from England and one of the carers when I was on duty came to me and put in a complaint that he'd been sexually inappropriate, which I thought was unusual. <laughs> um, you know, sexual inappropriateness is usually not something on the agenda when somebody's, you know, close to dying. Um, but this this young woman was distressed and it needed to be dealt with. Uh, so I went in into the room with this man and immediately understood that he was regressed. So while it could have been interpreted or misinterpreted as inappropriateness, he was grabbing at my blouse and pulling me in. But um, I'm really intuitive in this space, so I... I immediately understood that we were involved in some sort of story together. So I became what he needed in that story. And he pulled me close and started talking and crying like he was a really small boy. And I ended up holding him while he sobbed for hours. And um, later that evening, his family came in. Um, you know, I'd also supported the other young nurse to just observe that her complaint wasn't valid and and that was all addressed and when his family came in and we shared the story he was much calmer um, and verging on unconscious at this point um, they told us that he'd come over on a boat from England uh, in the ten dollar passages and his mother had been murdered in front of him at when he was five years old and he had blamed himself his whole life. Now, I still get emotional about this. These are the stories and the misinterpretation of that story. We could have compounded his trauma. Don't go near that man. He's, he's touching us inappropriately and compounded his birth trauma to the moment of his death. But in being able to meet him and then his family were and being able to reassure him it's not your fault, this incredible letting go and the man passed peacefully and uh, in a relatively short amount of time, having resolved that milestone, that huge experience in the psyche of, of let's say it, an eternal being. So dying has become equally as important as birthing. But what I'm particularly passionate about now is let's become conscious of these unconscious birth patterns and intergenerational trauma patterns now. Deal with them creatively and you won't need to face that in the dying process. And we will interrupt and disrupt the progress of chronic disease. Mm, and what you said earlier is getting back to the source. Correct. In birthing. I'm wondering if you have any sort of, I guess, could tell us a little bit more about the creative process interrupting or resolving trauma. You spoke about it, how it happened for you through um, the perinatal dreaming 
Have you witnessed that in the women and the mothers that you work with? Oh, 100%. And um, this is the area I'm really interested in now. And um, as we move further into this area, I see the omission in the work that I was doing and what limited it, in a sense, was collaboration. Honestly, the true potential now, and I say this to a lot of younger people who are concerned or lacking confidence in following their passion, please follow your passion because uh, the jobs that you're seeking don't exist. You're going to have to create them. And the more of us that step into this space and understand the imperative of creativity, it's not like, "Mm, will I be creative? Nobody sits around going, "Mm, will I respect gravity today or... Mm, am I going to embrace oxygen or no, am I going to have a day off? Like creativity is innate. So let's get with the program and let's really ignite creativity in each individual so that they can bring their unique gift to the table. So at the hub, the elegance of the hub and working with people on the spectrum from homelessness and severe trauma to transformation, the foundational Uh, philosophy I used was Maslow's hierarchy of needs you know don't give somebody a canvas and expensive paint when they've got nothing to eat and nowhere to sleep providing all that stuff I talked about like establishing the safety and meeting those essential biological human needs uh, was imperative and then Um, The next uh, stage we moved into was storytelling. Again, it's not threatening. So as people told more and more of their stories, uh, what I saw emerge was an opportunity which emerged. I didn't go seeking it. Uh, That's how it works. Where we were offered some funding, uh, I knew some really brilliant artists. We were already doing belly casting because uh, we knew that the whole process of making a belly cast promoted attachment safety security confidence elevated feelings but what we hadn't fully explored is painting stories on those bellies so we got a funding grant from access arts who are an incredible organization we employed missy knox an extraordinary indigenous artist And we bought some other artists in too and integrated them into the hub in that there were a number of master artists or creators, and you couldn't tell who was who, merged in the crowd, just sitting with people, listening to their stories, maybe working on a piece of paper on a diagram. And, like, one lady said to me, I'm not creative. I'm not going to put anything on my belly cast at all. I can't do it. I said, really, you haven't got any image. And so one image, it's this image of blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like uh, she described this image so incredibly. We exhibited this piece. Again, I wish I could show you the belly cast. You would be jaw dropped in awe. And again, with um, Missy's support, the support of a great artist, she was just saying, I think it should be green. I need this colour, this colour. Like, she knew everything she wanted. The gap was between that and putting it on to the belly in a way that excited her. So when you socially prescribe 
uh, for an artist to chaperone that, to midwife that experience, you're going to get an incredible outcome that is reciprocal, elevates the artist and the client, and you've gone to a whole new level. So we took this intensive work of taking our stories and putting them onto belly casts, and then we exhibited them at the Marta, and one of the young mums who I'm still working with, the incredible Alinta McGrady, also was had started work on an album around Birth of Mother. Um, she did an incredible song called Badass Mama that she uh, has recorded and that she sang at the opening of that. So the creativity was just extraordinary. It's like you ignite the creativity and then you stand back and watch a bushfire go wild. But the key is the holding container. You need to have, just as if you were doing surgery, you need to have your most highly qualified staff. I want my most highly qualified collaborators, dietitians, artists, physios, our um, group of allied health professionals that work as a community to create a culture of safety where uh, people can heal from trauma, shed the trauma, the creator emerges. And you can do it in a day, in an hour in that environment. Um, will it hold forever? No. You've still got to integrate that into that person's lifestyle, uh, way of being in the world. And that takes time and patience and commitment. But once people have had a life-changing experience, Eva, you can't jump back over that. You know, there's always the invitation to to grow that or to flourish that even more. Mm. You've spoken working with trauma, with birth, with death, and you also um, have your own creative practice. And I'm curious about what you do to care for yourself and to stay grounded and well as you work in these spaces. Really, really good question. And um, I'll openly admit I've burnt out a number of times. And again, uh, that has to do with my birth process and the driven nature of that. It would, it would be something physical that would stop me. Um, like psychologically, I could never find a point where you've done enough, ease back now, and that was a driven nature of my birth. And because a mother wasn't there at the end, there was no joy or celebration. You just worked, worked, worked till you burnt out and then you lay there, <laughs> like, you know, drowning, not waving, and hope that somebody rescued you. So... Um, this understanding of self-care has really evolved through the unpacking of that birthing process. And what I find now, I have to really pay attention to what gives me joy and factor that into my life every day. So um, it has been life-changing and life-giving for me to find that um, organically this state of well-being emerged because I couldn't make it happen. So nothing I could do got me into that space. But when I found the things, when I found I had more choice, as I started to shed these programs and put some space between me and the feelings, 
Um, if I had a great feeling, like being with my dog, I'd think I'm going to do this again and try and get that feeling twice today. So it was a really incremental accumulation of feeling well and investing in that enough until I started to understand that that had become my foundation of well-being, not the unconscious programs uh, that had been limiting me and creating a toxic environment. But it took an inordinate amount of time. And now I'm a bit like a born-again Christian in that I'm so committed to this idea of feeling good because really it's like what are you going to let happen in the world? What is so significant that you would give this feeling of well-being away to? And mm. I say that because whenever and- I've, I've fallen into survival mode, I've never been able to fix anything there. So if there was evidence for me that feeling crap, worrying, anxious, depressed, resentful, any of those feelings achieved an outcome that was desirable, I'd say go your hardest. But 62 years, and I'm really at the point now, not negotiable, it's like the hardest thing to remember when it's not a birth imprint is that we're supposed to feel good all the time. That's a a big statement and a big idea. Yeah. But... You know, and our egos will argue for our limitations. Oh, well, that's all well and good. I I feel good all the time, but look at this house. I need a new roof or blah, 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 blah. But at the bottom line, if you really, really unravel it, you're fighting for your limitations. You're fighting to feel crap. That's crazy. I've got one more question for you, which is, What is your greatest hope for your work? Brilliant question. God, you're good. Um, Undoubtedly that everybody would wake up um, and understand that they are a genius and magnificent beyond their wildest dreams, that that everybody got that, I've had a good day at work. (laughs) Imagine what we could bring to the planet. Imagine the instead of focusing on problems, if everybody stepped up with their creative genius and put forward what they could offer, wow. Thanks for listening to Singing Our Way Home. We have been speaking with Marianne Wopke. You can find out more about Marianne's work at her websites, Perinatal Dreaming and Understanding Country. Her websites will be linked in today's show notes which will be available at www.singingourwayhome.com where all the episodes and show notes will be there waiting for you if you want to get in touch. You can also get in touch via Instagram, Singing Our Way Home, where I'll be updating you regularly about new episodes and other gems around creativity and well-being. I love hearing from you. Stay in touch, subscribe, review and join the conversation. See you next time.